to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of Jacob, her son. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. 
His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Isaac heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from under your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it holds true and fast. We pray that you will speak through Ryan this morning. May your word go forth, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What a wild story, right? This is, this is one of the reasons that you can find God's word to be trustworthy, because this, would have not, this wouldn't have made the script in Hollywood, right? This would not have made it. Uh, might make a reality TV show, but not a script. Um, so as we dig in here, um, you know, I just, for, for the last six years, uh, I've had this great opportunity to mentor these five young men. Um, I, I started with them when they were sixth graders, and now they are uh, uh, they're juniors in high school. And, um, you know, these guys are guys that we, we, I goof off together with them. We play basketball uh, but we also talk about real uh, heavy and weighty stuff because they happen to come from homes that are very broken. None of them have a father in their life. And so I get to spend time with them every couple weeks. 
And uh, this past week, we got to talk about the subject of identity. And I asked them this question. I said, um, when was the last time you felt valued as a young man? And what happened to make you feel worth? You know, it's not just like a Bible study or anything like that. This is a kind of a school-sponsored thing, so I'm kind of coming in through the back door with them. And, 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 we, and we talked about it for a while, and what surfaced with these young men uh, was that they, they tend to find most value and worth from what other people think about them. Those are the, the, the feelings and thoughts that make them come most alive. And so what we begin to talk about after that is we tend to, the, just the reality that we tend to chase uh, with our behaviors the things that bring us the most value and worth. That, that's what we go after. And for some of these guys, it was, you know, his personal appearance or dating the right girl or, or having the right group of friends to identify with. And, you know, I was thinking about it. It really doesn't change much for us when we get older, does it? We just get more mature in our searching. And so I, I did kind of on a whim share this passage of Scripture with them from Psalm 139 that, that, that talks about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image, that, that we have dignity and identity because we are image bearers of God. And then, then one of the kids stands up and he says, he says this, he said, I don't believe in God. I know I'm going to hell. And we were like, whoa, like <laughs> easy, easy, easy. And so uh, I, I said, hey, why do you say that? Um, he said, because of the things I've done. He's like, I've dabbled in voodoo and Satanism and, you know, I've just played with fire. And then the things I've done to other people, and he started recounting some of those things, and he just said, I'm going to hell. He had made up his mind. That's where he was headed. And I leaned across the table to him, and I said, hey, bro, every single one of us are in the same boat as you without Jesus. Isn't that true? Every single one of us. So there doesn't have to be a period on that statement unless you want it to be. And so we began to talk more and more about Jesus. And my mentee, he's not quite there yet, um, but we're going to keep pouring the gospel into his heart. My, que my question for you today is this. Where are you at today? Our text today is about this sad, hopeless family, a broken family. I'd, I'd venture to say more broken than any of your families but also the promise of a God, a promise from God that not even sin can destroy. That's the thing that we see permeating this story. The, the writer of the book of Genesis was intent on making one thing very clear, church, and it was this. There are no spiritual heroes in the Bible other than Jesus. There are none. <laughs> there are only desperately wicked sinners in, in need of grace. That's all that there is in the Bible. You, you can try to posterize these characters. You can try to posterize Christians. And I can tell you they're going to be on a podcast later, okay? It's just going to happen. When you put your trust in man, they're going to fall. And then your faith is going to be weakened when you do that. There are no heroes in the Bible. There's only Jesus. The, the reason why this is in the Bible, I think, is to highlight that it is only God who is faithful in the midst of our faithlessness. That it is God who fulfills the promise to be our God and we to be his people because we are so sinful. And that we shouldn't boast in any man, woman, or child, but only in God. And so here's our big idea today. It's pretty straightforward. Everyone's lost. No one deserves to be saved. And that's the whole point of grace. All right? That's what we discover in this story of this family uh, today. So let me just kind of recap the story a little bit. It was pretty long. Let me just kind of, I'm going to recap it and then we're going we're to press into some application for our own lives here. 
So Isaac is this, this old man now, okay? Um, I think the commentators say he's about 135 at this point. And he's basically blind. So he calls into his bedroom his favorite son Esau. Now that's, that's a problem in and of itself. Um, but Esau had this twin brother whose name was Jacob. And Jacob was Rebekah's favorite son, Isaac's wife. And the story of God's people is that, is that God has entered into a covenant relationship with sinful people by grace alone. He's chosen Abraham, Isaac's father, out of darkness and into the light and called him to trust him and in return that he would bless him with a supernaturally grace-filled relationship with him that would last for all eternity. And all of his descendants, spiritual descendants, would be blessed because of his relationship with God. Now Isaac is the first son of Abraham and Sarah that they had when they were in their 90s. And he's passing on this this unbelievable blessing, this miraculous blessing to his children. And we, 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 we get a glimpse into the four walls of their house and how this blessing is passed down. It's much different than when Abraham blessed, uh, passed it down to his son. But the promise remains intact. That's the point of this. So, you know... As we see this, there was an oracle that was given in Genesis, I think, 25, when the boys are born, that the, the, the younger would serve, the, or the older would serve the younger brother. Now, I, I don't understand this. I don't understand Romans 9 fully where it says, where, where the scriptures say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I don't pretend to, to fully comprehend that. And here's the thing. We don't have to be able to fully comprehend that because God is God and we are not. Amen. And so what we see here is this is the oracle, this is the truth, and what God says comes into existence, doesn't it? And so sure enough, we have the scene set here, and, um, and, and, and what happens in, in, in this story is that typically the older son would be the one that the blessing would be passed down to, and that blessing uh, would be given in the presence of many witnesses. In fact, the whole family would be gathered around the bed, and the father would bless everyone, and he would have words of encouragement uh, that were grace-filled to say to the family. But Isaac goes about this in a manipulative way because he knows the oracle that, that, that the, the promise is actually going down through Jacob's line, not Esau's. But the problem is, is that he loves Esau so much, or really he loves his game so much that he tries to kind of usurp the, the plan of God. And so he secretly and deceitfully calls uh, Esau into his room. And the, 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 the dynamics are so busted in this house that Rebecca knows something's up, and she's eavesdropping outside the door. And she hears what's going on. He's, he's going to give Esau the blessing instead of Jacob. And so then they, 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 they begin to, uh, uh, to, to put this plan together that gets really dark and lowly, okay? I mean, when you are gluing goat skin on your son's hand, there might be a problem. Amen? If any of you start doing that, we're going to have a conversation. So it gets really, really dark, and uh, there's this kind of deceptive scene that's put into place, and then Rebecca starts uh, with the, kind of pressing in with these power dynamics over Jacob, where she says, obey my voice, son, do this. And, uh, and Esau, two, or Isaac, two to three different times, did you hear in the story, he's like, are you really Esau? He says it like three different times. He knows What's going on here in the back of his mind? But he trusts his insatiable appetite more than his convictions from the Spirit in this moment. And we see 
as this whole pathetic scene plays out, that the plan of God actually plays out perfectly, even though it's trying to be manipulated in so many different ways. That this terrible, deceitful son is God's chosen instrument. And God works through the deceit to accomplish his purposes. Esau is hurt, like anybody would be, right? So he's intent, he's kind of, he's kind of, he's kind of put a, a statement on his relationship with his brother. I'm going to kill him. When my father dies, I'm going to kill him too, because they're all dead to me. And, uh, and we've seen this before, right? Cain and Abel, it's, it's a thing that happens between siblings, apparently. So Rebecca and Isaac are able to come together this one last time to send Jacob away to her brother Laban to find a wife from their homeland, not these pagan Hittites. And Uncle Laban, we will see, will give him a dose of his own medicine for decades. He will be deceived. The saddest, one of the saddest parts about this whole story is this is the last that we hear from Rebecca in the Bible. We find out that she's buried, but this is the last that we hear from her. Is this deceitful moment that really describes really their family dynamics and how hopelessly lost they are apart from God's miraculous grace that intervenes. I mean, Isaac, he's this spiritually stunted man driven by his desires. Esau following right after his dad and Jacob following right after his mom. So what's this mean for us this morning? I think each character is broken and flawed in equal but different ways. Uh, We read this and we want to say, okay, God, you should just start over, right? I mean, these guys aren't going to cut it. But I I want to invite you to, to take a different perspective of this, to see yourself in this story today, to see your tendencies your family dynamics, your shortcomings, your worst moments. And why? Why do I want you to do that? Because if we cannot see God working through our flaws and our shortcomings, we cannot know God or experience salvation. It is the prerequisite to living a life of grace. So let's dig in together to this. First point is this. Everyone's lost and no one deserves to be saved. Isn't that good news? Everyone's lost and no one deserves to be saved. So let's look at, let's look at the, kind of the two different pairs of family dynamics here. Let's look at Isaac and Esau first. I would, I would say that these guys are dominated by an insatiable appetite for this world. A desire for this world that is, that is overcome, um, that overcomes really their, their own spiritual inclinations. Um, and it's, it's really tough to be truly honest in our own hearts about the pull that this world has on us. And that's why many of us spend so much of our lives um, trying to convince ourselves and others that the world doesn't have a hold of us. The truth is that it's much stronger than any of us care to admit. We'd like to think that we are not as far off as we are, um, but the truth is many people, um, even some of us here today, have, have made light of the covenantal blessing of knowing God. We've made light of our relationship with God through Jesus and in effect have sold our birthright. You know, you, you look at the end of Esau's, Genesis 27, Esau's comments when he weeps bitterly. That is, a, that, that is almost like an apocalyptic scene for us, for it to be seared into our minds. There are going to be people that have been a part of the church, been a part of the covenantal blessing family of God, who are going to weep bitterly because they're not going to get the blessing because they never knew Jesus. They were a part of the family, 
but they never knew Jesus. So it's, it's kind of this scene that we kind of fast forward to. And the book of Hebrews actually talks about it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, when God is talking about the, the covenant of grace and how it goes down through the generations with all of, through all of these sinners that he saves by grace, he says this about Esau. And, and I read this a while back, but I'll read it again here. He says, for you know that afterward, when he, Esau, desi- desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, what this passage means is not that Esau was, was, was beating down heaven's door trying to follow the Lord. It meant that when he saw the consequences of being a fraud, of being driven by his appetite, and not leaning into the responsibility of being a covenant child of God, and, and everything that would flow from that, that he regretted his decision. And the book of Revelation talks about how this is going to play out in the end of time. There are going to be many that do. You cannot live life making light of Jesus and his gospel by the way that you live and expect to receive the inheritance of eternity. You just can't do it. The point of of what happens here is that Esau's heart was driven by an entirely different appetite. Now, it's clear that God's grace was on Isaac's life. You know, he was a believer in the promise of grace, but the reality is Isaac never really grew past a, you know, a, a spiritually uh, immature infant. He never really did, and we see that even toward the end of his life. And listen to Genesis 25, 28. This is when it's clear that the two have favorites after the boys are born. It says this, Isaac loved Esau, and then there's this, there's this description of why he loved him. Because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. For Isaac, this, this appetite, it was a physical appetite for him. It controlled his life, and it never really left him. He was in bondage to it. Some of us in this room know what that's like, don't we? We know what it's like to be driven, to be imprisoned, to be enslaved with our appetites. And here's really an image of Isaac and Esau's life. A life without self-control. It comes from Proverbs chapter 25, 28. I want you to just let this image sit with you about what happens when the, the Holy, when, when the Holy Spirit doesn't give us the fruit of his spirit and self-control. He says this, A man without self-control, Solomon writes, is like a city broken into and left without walls. What an image, right? Is there a more vulnerable picture that you could have in the, in the scriptures? A city broken into and left without walls. It's this sad picture. And, and here's the thing. We have, these, we have these appetites for this world too. Isaac and Esau in particular, are, are, they're driven by an appetite for this world that overpowers their life. And for them it's food. Maybe it's food for you too. Or, or maybe it's drink, pleasure, adventure, approval. And we're tempted to think that the problem is the appetite itself. And I would venture to say, if you think that, then you're going to spend your life trying to modify your behaviors to subdue the appetite, the hunger and the thirst that is inside of you. The problem isn't the appetite. God gave you the appetite. The problem is the object that you're driven to, the appetite that you're, that you're, that whatever you're chasing God gives us these appetites so that we might search for him. Psalm 42, 1, you know what it says? As the deer pants for streams of water, so 
my soul longs for you. The problem is not the appetite. It's the object of the appetite. St. Augustine would say this about his own life in his work, Confessions. He said this, I was in misery, and misery is the state of every soul overcome by friendship with mortal things. And this is such a strong word, lacerated when they are lost, torn to shreds when you lose what it is you're chasing. He says, then the soul becomes aware of the misery, which it is its actual condition even before it loses them. And he'd go on to say this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Do you have a restless heart this morning, church? You see, you and I were made to search for satisfaction. We were built for it. We were, we were made to live hungry and thirsty lives. And the misery <clears throat> that this search leads us to, and if you've lived very long in this world, you've found, your place in a, you found yourself in a place of misery. You've pursued something. It could be a, a vocational aspiration. Uh, it could be a certain type of a lifestyle or a relationship. And you get to the end of it, and it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. And you're miserable. And, and, and you're tempted to roll back the tape and say, you know, I should have just tempered my expectations a little more effectively. I'd venture to say that's really not the whole point of it. The, the point is, what are you hungering and thirsting for? You know, the Lord could leave us in our mis- misery. He could leave us right there. But the very fact that we can feel misery shows us that we were made for so much more in this world. Matthew 5, 6 says this. This is Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is being right with God through doing what God requires, right? That's a pretty simple definition of what righteousness is. Now, when you think about righteousness on your own and attaining it on your own, you're like, well, I can never do what God requires. Like, I, I failed a long time ago. This is why Jesus is so supreme for us, church. This is why. And, and, and the way that you view righteousness and you're standing before God changes how your hunger and your thirst is directed in this world and ultimately how you are satisfied in this world. We are made righteous through faith in Jesus. No one is righteous on their own. And we've seen that clearly from this scripture today. But on the flip side, in Jesus... Many people do not believe that they are actually righteous. Many people do not actually believe that the Father is well pleased with them and that they are perfect in God's sight because of the imputed righteousness that Christ has given to us through faith. Most Christians do not believe that, and that is why their lives are no different from the pagans that live down the street from us. We don't believe we're righteous. And so we keep... We keep chasing all of these things, filling this bottomless pit that's in our hearts when infinite joy is just right around the corner for us in Christ. Searching for happiness without righteousness leads to miserableness. It leads us to misery every single time. Jesus says that the cure for the insatiable appetite that you have for this world is the righteousness of God. In other words, we'll never be able to rightly enjoy our experience as believers in this world without 
enjoying first our standing with God as righteous children. When is the last time you thought of yourself as righteous? When was it? I bet half the room can't remember. Maybe a quarter of the room doesn't still believe it. In Jesus, friends, this is who you are. You're spotless. There's not a blemish on your record because of Christ. To be righteous is to describe a fixed and sturdy standing before God, a right relationship, not a momentary behavioral breakthrough. Most of us think that's what righteousness is, and that is a righteousness that depends on you, not God. It's not about having a good week. It's not about, you know, finally, you know, kicking that sinful habit. We've got our, we've got our gaze set on the wrong focus. It's about, by faith alone, being right before God through Christ, and then living from that righteousness, everything else finds its proper place in our lives. These appetites don't have to drive your life the way that they did for Jacob and for Esau. And my prayer for you today is that you would live from a position of righteousness and then let the chips fall where they may in your pursuits in this world because it makes all the difference. Now, that's not the only broken family we've got here. Um, Jake, uh, Rebecca and Jacob. I would say this. These two guys are dominated by an idol of control. Um, so this mother and son duo think that they're so, mar- so um, smart that they, can, that they can outwit the Lord. Um, now this desire to control through manipulating is something that we've probably all experienced in life. Um, or, or maybe that's just my confession here. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I think the more that I think about it, there are really only two ways to live in this life. Either to surrender to God by following him or to be God. Those are the only two ways. And I think we vacillate, we fluctuate between that, right? Rebecca and Jacob struggle deeply with this tension in their hearts. And we all need to be reminded of this truth today. And I want you to say it with me. Control is a facade. Can you say that with me? If you don't know what facade is, Google it. It's like fake. It's a veneer, right? It's, It's not real. That calendar on your phone... You know, that that trip that you've planned, that future that you're investing in, it's all in God's hands. You cannot control it. It's it's, it's a facade. And we see that that for for these guys, um, they think that they can control the outcome of the blessing, of the situation. And I think it's a a fake and a false lie that we believe. I mean, do do you really think that Isaac's desire to control the blessing was going to work out. I mean, Isaac is trying to control the, the, the narrative too. And I would say for me, uh, parenting is probably one of the most prominent places this idol surfaces, maybe for some of you as well. Uh, we, we do everything right. You know, little Johnny has the right friends. Uh, he goes to the right school. Um, you know, we do everything in our power to control the outcome of our children's lives. And then we realize, wow, they're their own person, Right? Where did that come from, we might say. Still little Johnny gets in this messy situation, chooses a lifestyle that's walking away from Jesus, whatever the worst case scenario is for you. 
And, and how do we respond to those moments? I, I think a lot of times in those moments we say, man, if I could just roll back the clock and do things a little differently. How, how is that any different than what we believed about control in the first place? We're just saying, hey, I would control it a little bit differently since I couldn't control it the first time, right? Rolling back the clock is not the answer. It's not the answer. That's not the pathway forward for hope. That thinking is twisted, church, because what we assume is that we have the ability to control our situation. If you struggle with this today, and it just, it, it kind of, it's kind of the thorn in your flesh, um, I want to remind you of, of really two things today. The, the first one is this. God knows exactly what you need and when you need it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this uh, to a bunch of anxious people that were prone to the um, idol of control. He said this, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or, or in other words, people who don't know God and have a relationship with him, seek after all these things. In other words, this is the primary thing that they're after. If I can just control, you know, my own destiny. But he says, seek after, uh, he says, your heavenly father, in other words, because you do know God, you have a heavenly father, and that changes everything, knows that you need them all. But seek first, and here's the order that matters so much, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? His righteousness that's given to you through Jesus. You're standing before God. Seek first the kingdom and that, and all these things will be added to you. Everything else will play out as God has intended it to. So when we live out of our righteousness with Christ, when that is the primary thing that we are focused on, and not trying to become righteous with God because of our ability to navigate life's challenges, we have incredible hope. You are free, friend, to not be all-knowing, to get blindsided every once in a while. Did you know that? You're, you're free because you know why? You're not omniscient. Isn't that good news? You're not God. You are free to feel weak and overpowered sometimes. You know why? Because you're not omnipotent. You're not all-powerful. You're free to lean fully on the righteousness that comes through what Jesus has done from you and not on your own effort. The second thing, if you struggle with this facade of control, I want to tell you is this. God doesn't waste anything in your life. We want to roll back the tape because we think God wastes things in our lives. Romans 8.28 is a verse I probably use in every other sermon. It's okay. We all have them. We know that for those who love God, all things, doesn't say some things, doesn't say most things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything that is happening in your life has one purpose, Christian, to finish you as a believer in Jesus. God doesn't waste a thing. My question to you as we kind of land the plane here is, <clears throat> do you have any blinding appetites that are just leading you to misery today? Do you have any situations that you're grasping onto and trying to control that are slipping through your fingers? I've got good news for you. 
you're a desperately wicked sinner. You're not God. And the good news is, Jesus knows that, and that's why he came. That's why God sent him. So that we could be weak and need his righteousness and not our own. Second thing, second point, big point is this, is that no one's worthy of Jesus, and that's the whole point of grace. It's the whole point. The whole point of this story is we look at it and we're like, man, I'm glad my family's not that messed up. The whole point is that God's grace still prevails in the midst of all of this wickedness. No matter which character you struggle to identify with the most, or that you do, that's not really the point of the sermon. The point is that Jesus came to this world to give us abundant life and to save us from ourselves. That's the whole point. And if we cannot see that, we will never be satisfied or content in this life without him. We'll never receive the gift of grace that he gave his life for. One time Jesus was eating uh, dinner with, with some people that kind of looked like Jacob and Esau and uh, Isaac and Rebekah. They were, they were like, um, the Bible calls them sinners and tax collectors, okay? People that, people that don't belong in church, okay? Uh, Jesus was eating dinner with them one time. And then, and then uh, you know, some church folk rolled up on the scene. And they had some thoughts about that, as you can imagine. Here's what Jesus said to them. I just want to remind you of this. As he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners, outcasts, you know, people that don't belong there, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, what is your rabbi doing? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard him. Probably kind of awkward for them because they were trying to get around Jesus. And he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. There's that word again, right? And what Jesus is saying is, I came not to call people who have their own righteousness, but ones that are desperate for mine. That's who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus was drawn to. Jesus has come for people who have tried life their own way and have realized it's not working. Is that you today? Is that where you're at today? Or is life working out pretty good for you? Jesus came for people who are at the end of themselves, not people who are full of themselves. And my prayer is if you're in a position where Jesus is just kind of a a bolt-on to your life, that God would bring you to the end of yourself, that he'd be merciful in doing so. Because it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's not the healthy that need Jesus, but it's the, it's the sick. In our story today, Jacob gets nervous about this deceitful plan, doesn't he? When mom's trying to coerce him into doing this and, and kind of making everything work out, what, is, what does Jacob say to mom? He says, what if dad finds out? And what if he gives me a curse instead of a blessing, mom? What's Rebecca say to him? What's she say? Let the curse fall on me. Let the curse fall on me, Genesis 27, 13. In other words, she's saying, Jacob, I'll take your place. I'll pay for your sin. She has no ability to do that. She has no ability to come through with what she's promising her son. She can't take the place of their sin and somehow impute life to Jacob She can't make Jacob righteous. That's the empty promise that we believe when we live by the standards of this world. 
The world makes you that promise over and over and over again. Let the curse fall on me. Find happiness outside of God's design. It will all work out. It never does, church. It never will. God is too kind to us to let life work out like that. Who will take the curse for you? Who do you trust to take the curse for you when life unravels? However you've related to this story today, the same question comes to you. Who will take the curse for you? Who will take the curse for living life your own way, being driven by your own appetites and trying to control your life? Because there is a curse that's coming for sinners. And either Jesus takes it for you or you take it for yourself. It's what Romans 6.23, the old Romans road, right? For the wages of sin is death. In other words, you can't live a life of sin and expect to find eternal life. Just can't do it. It's not going to work out. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That righteousness that makes you whole. Friends, we are cursed and cut off from God. From the God of life because of sin. And we cannot go back and rewind the tape. We cannot go back and record over it. What's done is done. And only Jesus can endure the sinful schemes of this world and still give life to his people. I love Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and I'm just going to close with this. Um, in, in Acts chapter 2, what we see is that the schemes of this world are playing out on a, on a grand scale, and God's plan is preserving sinners. L- listen to what the, the sermon that Peter preaches. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was all God's plan all along. But at the same time, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by him. Isn't that really good news? That Jesus has taken the curse and given us the life we could never find. The reality is is that I killed Jesus and you did with your sin. That's the reality. That's the stone cold truth today. But the miraculous grace of God prevails through this story today, even in Genesis 27 through wicked sinners. And that apart from Jesus, we'll spend our lives being held by death. But by trusting in Christ, he loosens the pangs of death that control us. And therefore, we can't be held by him anymore either. And that's really good news for us today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, Thank you for giving us this wicked story in Genesis 27. Thank you that there's more darkness in it than there is hope at the time. Because sometimes life feels like that for us too. Father, your son Jesus reigns more supremely over our lives than we will ever know. He has done more for us than we will ever be able to comprehend. And because of that, we are more righteous than we could ever dare to believe. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room today that maybe struggle with that reality. That their appetite for this world or desire to control their lives keeps them imprisoned. 
to a perpetual spiritual infancy, Lord. I pray that we would see the grace of God for what it is, whole, pure, and sufficient for our every need. Lord, would you meet us today as we cling to your grace, as we grasp for your grace and let go of our own lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.